it's good to be here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in preliminaries this morning because I already understand our time is limited. Uh, at least we have a deadline on it <laughs> that we'll have to stop. And so for that reason, I'll not have a lot of personal things. I might say it later. Some time ago, uh, I got to thinking I was had preached a number of series of lessons in gospel meetings. And it dawned on me that the Lord said, uh, or rather the Apostle Paul said, that we were to preach Christ and Him crucified. Don't know me, I didn't have a series just on Jesus. And so I kind of put one together and then tried to fine tune it a little bit over the years. So I want to present that to the, uh, this week to get us acquainted with more about Jesus and more, more about what role that he's played in our salvation and, uh, and other things as well. In uh, John 1 and verse 29, <clears throat> uh, the next day John saw Jesus coming unto, toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He refers to him as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Uh, and Peter uh, points out in First Peter 1 and I believe it's about verse 19 that it was without blemish uh, that he was a sacrifice he was a lamb without blemish and so the first of the series we want to talk about this morning is Jesus as the Lamb of God Lord willing the next hour whatever time is allotted there we'll talk about him as the Lion of Judah and then we want to talk about him as our lawgiver. That'll be the three lessons for the day, and we'll talk about the others as we get to them. Uh, the idea of a lamb has twofold application. Uh, it has the application of meekness. Uh, we think of a lamb as meek. Also, it has the uh, application of uh, not only meekness, but also a mission. Uh, that Je Jesus, as the Lamb of God, had a mission to fulfill, and that was to take away the sin of the world. And so it emphasized his meekness as well as his mission. Uh, in First Peter 1 and 23, he says, Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So he uh, showed that meekness in his uh, lack of retaliation for his ill treatment that he received at the hand of the Jews. It went so far as to say he reviled uh, not, that he, uh, when he's reviled, he didn't do it again. When he suffered, he didn't threat. No. But he committed himself to uh, him, that would be his father, who judges righteously. And as the mission, he was the Lamb of God. He was the sacrificial lamb uh, without spot, without blemish, who was to be given for the atonement of our sins. That's the reason he came into the world, uh, primarily. Of course, he left an example that we should follow and did a lot of teaching and did a lot of teaching particularly to his apostles so he could leave them uh, having uh, sent them the Holy Spirit so that they in turn should uh, spread his story or his gospel throughout the world. And uh, 
So when I think of him as the Lamb of God, I think of those two things. I think of the meekness of spirit that he had. Though he had, uh, it was in a position, you could not think of a position more highly uh, honored than the position he had. Yet he showed that meekness of spirit and he carried out that mission to the point that he finally said, it is finished. Uh, the sacrificial, him as a sacrificial lamb, is really the subject of Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, in uh, 53, we generally talk about it being the suffering servant, and that's correct. But also involved in that, also he is the sacrificial lamb. If you turn to Isaiah 53, and we'll spend some time there this morning. Uh, in uh, verse 7 of Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shares is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. So Isaiah 53 not only refers to him as a servant, as a suffering servant, but he also is a suffering lamb. He's the Lamb of God. He, he was uh, brought as a lamb without slaughter. So we want to look at uh, Isaiah 53, and we'll notice in that, uh, and we, I think all of us here recognize that Isaiah 53 is a prophecy concerning the Messiah, concerning Jesus. And we want to notice several aspects of his suffering uh, as the Lamb of God. That's pointed out particularly in uh, Isaiah 53 and maybe a few accompanying passages. Uh, the Lamb, we'll notice first the extent, then we'll notice the purpose the patience and the afternoon, uh, rather aftermath, and also the reaction to his suffering. And when we look at the extent of it, there in Isaiah 53, where we were talking, uh, is the first thing we notice he suffered uh, by having been denied the esteem that he really should have. Uh, you know, it's hard for a man who knows, and of course he was in a position to know, uh, who knows that he deserves esteem, that he should have esteem, but, and especially, do we like to please our family? And especially, do we like to please our neighbors and we like for them to hold us in high esteem? But Jesus was denied that esteem uh, that he deserved from those who were around about him. Notice the first three verses of Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness that uh, when we see, uh, shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we, held, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Uh, to me, that is the greatest affront that they could uh, give the Son of God. That is to not esteem him, not to give him the position, not to give him the uh, honor uh, that he really deserved. But he came to the world knowing that would be so. But he suffered all of that 
that we might have the benefit of his sacrifice that he would later give. Uh, the modernists today are guilty of not esteeming them in a number of ways. The theological modernists, they will try to cling to his name, but they deny him the esteem of his deity. They do not uh, recognize his deity. Jesus is one that they follow, and they like to uh, consider themselves to be Christian, but they have gotten smarter than God, and they think that they know that the inspiration of the scriptures could not be. And they know that Jesus could not have been a uh, one who is the Son of God in a unique sense. So they want to hold on to the name Christian, and yet they deny the deity of Christ. Uh, they won't, uh, and they, the benefit of that, uh, they want the name but they don't want the stigma. They don't want the academic stigma, uh, stigma of the elite academia of the world. So they feel if they uh, latch on to what the Bible teaches about the uh, Christ and about his position, they would receive a stigma themselves. And they don't want that, but they still want to cling to Christianity. And denominationalism pretty well uh, clings to the name and it will not esteem his uh, person as they should. They, they don't esteem his will, uh, nor his authority, nor his name, nor his church. But they esteem greatly, greatly the name of Christ. But they want to leave the name and not uh, accept what that name stands for. They can think they can keep the name, but they can ignore the other things about him. Uh, the prayer of the Lord was that they may be one in uh, John 17, 20 through 21 concerning his apostles. He said, neither pray I for these alone, but them also which should believe on them through their word. That's us. That they all may be one, Father, as thou art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Here is the prayer of the Lord for that they be one. Uh, yet the denominational uh, theory is that's a good thing, that we have all these various different churches, so everyone can be a Christian, and yet they can uh, go about and teach a different doctrine. They can uh, attend uh, a church that's entirely different from what the Bible teaches. And they can do as they please as long as they claim to be Christian. Well, he, then thus they're saying really division is a good thing. And it's good that everybody, I've heard people have told me, isn't it good that everybody has a church of the choice so everybody can have what they want? Well, they can't have that and answer the prayer of the Lord. He says they may be one. But I want to notice in that, he says that they may be one, not just for the sake of being one, but as the Father, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. One in the same sense the Father and the Son are one. And 
that they also may be one in us. Uh, those who would believe on the Christ would be obedient to His will. They would be not only one with the Father and with the Son, but they would also be uh, one with Christ and His apostles, and that the world may believe that Thou hast sent me. Another thing that added to his suffering as a suffering servant, he was denied justice. Back to Isaiah 53, and look at verse 4. Sure, he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Notice that it says there, Surely he hath borne our griefs, and he hath carried our sorrows, not his own. So whatever he suffered was not justice. It was not justice because uh, he had no sins to be punished for. And so he bore our griefs and he bore our sorrows. But listen, but yet we did not esteem him, uh, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Uh, I think Isaiah in prophesying this when he said we did not esteem him, I believe he's talking about the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Uh, they did not esteem him, uh, stricken, but smitten of God and afflicted. How did they look upon it? They looked on the crucifixion as his getting his just desserts. They accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of these other things. And they felt like, well, he received what he deserved. He was smitten of God that the crucifixion was actually God's vengeance and God's uh, work of punishing Jesus for his blasphemy and for all these other things. And so, but he was denied justice. In Matthew 8 and 17, that he might be fulfilled, we spoke about Isaiah the prophet saying, himself took our infirmities and our sicknesses. But not only that, but he was denied life itself. And uh, back to the eighth verse of Isaiah 53, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Denied life himself. But the way that he gave up his life is a horrible way to go. Crucified by a method that was reserved for the very vilest of criminals among the Roman uh, people and the Roman law. He, crucifixion, was generally reserved for the worst of them, and yet he was crucified. He was denied life by an execution of a Roman government in a way that uh, would shock anyone who had any moral sensitivity about him at all. Yet, he did that, that we might be saved, bore our iniquities, he bore our sin. But that brings us into the second uh, part, the purpose of his suffering. It was, as I've suggested already, he was to atone our sins. He was the atoning sacrifice. Under the Old Testament system, 
they had a sacrifice of atonement. And they had other sacrifices as well. They had the sin offering, which was the lamb without blemish. Uh, but the purpose of it was the Old Testament uh, law was to put up the animal sacrifice at, that would be an atonement for the sin of the people. Uh, namely, that the people would not have to die, but the lamb, or as the case of the bull, uh, the bulls in uh, the case of some atonement, uh, they, uh, that was put upon him. He had to suffer uh, their, the things they did, and that was a type of that which was to come. That was the type of Jesus. He was the type of that sacrifice. Uh, and the purpose was to atone for our sins and not for his. Look at verse 5 of uh, 53 of Isaiah. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes he was healed. And then on down in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put, forth, put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul uh, an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I think prolong his days there, talking about the resurrection, that his days were prolonged. But here Jesus as an atonement for our sins. I've heard some say that Jesus became a sinner for us. I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a minute. I heard a young man preaching on it some time ago, and he described all the filth of sin, and he said Jesus had to wallow in that for a while uh, during his crucifixion so that we could be saved. No, I don't think Jesus became a sinner for us. I think he became an atoning sacrifice for our sins but he was without sin from beginning to end. So he never was he made a sinner for us, but he was made an atonement, a sacrifice for sin for us that was prefigured by the atoning sacrifice of the Old Testament for the sins of the people. But it was a necessary sacrifice. Romans chapter 3, uh, 23. For all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. Uh, I used to read that passage and stumble around over it, wondering what it meant when he said, we come short of the glory of God. Does that mean that we come short of uh, the glory of God in that we fail to reach the uh, status that God has in his glory? Don't think so. If the original word there is part in some places translated praise, uh, and this this is for what it's worth. You don't have to agree with it, but it's what it's worth. Uh, my take on that is that he came short of the glory of God. we come short of the glory of God. We uh, come short of his praise or his uh, uh, approval. We've come short of that praise or that approval. He has no, we took away the reason he had to praise us when we sin and turn away from God. And we took away 
uh, his reason uh, for uh, comforting us and all that uh, because we sinned against him. We came short of the glory of God, of his praise and his honor. Being freely, uh, but said, been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a perpetuation. The word perpetuation there literally means an atoning victim. And he became an atoning victim through the faith in his blood, the declaration of the righteous for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Uh, so it was a necessary thing that it happened uh, because our sins had to be atoned for. There had to be an atoning sacrifice and it had to be uh, given by one that was out, without spot or without blemish. And Jesus was that appropriate sacrifice of all the universe. There's no one that could feel that bill. Uh, he had typified it under the old law by the uh, blood of bulls and goats and now it's fulfilled under the new uh, system by the blood of Jesus Christ. But in all of that, as bad as it was, it was a willing sacrifice on his part. He went there because he wanted to go there. Uh, in verse 24 of 1 Peter 2, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. For ye were as sheep gone astray, but now return to the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. So he, his own self, bear our sins on the body on the tree. He went there himself. He went there to do what God wanted done. And our iniquities had separated us between, uh, uh, separated us from God. Isaiah 59 tells us that our sins separate us. And also 2 John 9 tells us that we go on and abide not in the doctrine of Christ. We have not God. In what sense do we don't have God? We don't have His fellowship. We are no longer in fellowship with God. And our iniquities then have separated us from the fellowship of God. And Jesus was a willing sacrifice in order that we might once again be in fellowship with God and have the cause of that uh, lack of fellowship taken away. That is, the transgressions and the sins taken away. Thirdly, as we notice Isaiah, we want to notice the patience of his suffering. He went to that cross, as horrible as it was, and he submitted to his Father's will. He knew it was his will, and he followed it. You remember in his prayer, he prayed that this cup be removed from me, but then he said, Nevertheless, thy will be done. Uh, in Isaiah 53 and 7, uh, it's marvelous how detailed uh, chapter 53 of Isaiah is concerning the life of Christ and the death of Christ. Uh, in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He did it without complaining, without murmuring. He submitted to the will of the Father. Uh, 
and he was patient. Uh, in that, uh, in that, when those came to crucify him, he didn't retaliate. He was patient in that when Judas betrayed him, he didn't retaliate uh, in the sense that immediately uh, did something to Peter. If you notice in uh, the Hebrew letter, he said, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience, 589. Though he were a son, let learn the obedience by the things that he suffered. And being made perfect or complete, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. He learned obedience by the things he suffered. Does that mean before he suffered on the cross that he did not know obedience? In any sense, no. What that's saying is that by the experience of the suffering that he underwent, he learned by experience, not just academically, but by experience, he learned obedience by the things he suffered and been made perfect. Well, was he not already perfect? Yes, in the sense he was already morally perfect. He was already spiritually perfect, but he was made perfect. That is, he was made a perfect uh, author, our perfect uh, originator of salvation. And he was perfect in that he had completed all that he needed to do in order to be a perfect sacrifice that we might have the eternal salvation. And he did it patiently and without murmuring. And of course, a lesson for the, in us is that we're not to retaliate we are told that we are to feed those that uh, are enemies. We are to do good to them. Uh, and they are, uh, in doing good to them, he says, you'll heap coals of fire upon the head. That is, if you really want to re retaliate, you really want to get the best of him, do good to him. If you really want to do, get the best for him, get the best of him, then, uh, don't retaliate against him. That's equivalent to cause a fire upon his head. I think I may have, uh, Stephen may have heard me tell this story of this woman one time that went to a divorce court and she was in the, uh, talking about how bad her husband was and petitioned the judge that she, that judge that she, she deserved a divorce from him, the rascal that he was. Well, the judge wanting to save the marriage and also uh, was pretty religious himself, he asked her, said, have you ever done what the Bible says? She said, what's that? And she said, he coals a fire up on his head. She said, no, I've tried boiling water several times, but it didn't work. Uh, but the uh, coals of fire in this case would work. That is, do good to them to spitefully use you. How much more time I got? About, about five minutes, that's what I thought. Down to number four. <laughs> All right. I rushed it a little bit because of that, but I, the, we want to notice the aftermath of his suffering. His days were prolonged, it said of him. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And then it says uh, a little bit later, he shall prolong his days, that's in verse 10. Of Isaiah 53. Hebrew writer says, uh, He ever liveth to make intercession for us. 
his position was exalted above all other positions. He was, he says in verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, Isaiah 53, 12, and the spoil and the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and so on. But he was divided his portion among the great. Verse 12, again he says, I read verse 1, I beg your pardon, of Ephesians 1. When he was raised from the dead, he was put above all principality and power in heavenly places and so on. He had an exalted position as a result of his being raised from the dead. And the reaction to his suffering we see in the case of the Ethiopian unit. The Ethiopian unit was reading from Isaiah the prophet, uh, this very part that I've read a few minutes ago. Read there, and he was asked by Philip, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized. And, uh, no, that's in the case of Paul. But he was, here's water, water, hinder me to be baptized. And when they got to the water, he baptized him, he came up out of the water, went on his way rejoicing. What was the result of preaching Jesus using Isaiah 53 as the basis of it? And so the reaction, when one understands that, when he takes it to heart, he won't, he'll want to obey the Lord and want to be a Christian. And he says he go, went on his way rejoicing. Let me make this observation, then I'll close. I can't see to save me how that some brethren sometime, and I think they are sincere in it, but they seem to want to go, after they become a Christian, they want to go through the rest of their lives beating themselves up for how bad they were back in those days. And uh, they are forever dwelling on how unworthy they are to be uh, a Christian. Well, we are. And we need to think about that. But not to the point it uh, makes us kind of morbid and uh, go around with a long face. Actually, as bad as it was, we have reason to rejoice. The Philip went on his way rejoicing. Why do we have reason to rejoice that he had to suffer? No. But rejoice at the ben benefit that that suffering brought to us. And the result of that benefit is that we are the saved children of God. We are what God wants us to be, what the Son wants us to be, and what we ought to want to be is servants of His and having our sins washed away and having continual access to that blood that was shed in, on the cross that we might turn to Him and get uh, forgiveness at, when we sin against Him. So we need to act more like the unit. We need to go on our way rejoicing, rejoicing that Jesus has died and is willing to suffer for us. Think about it in a sense, and even the Lord's Supper, think about the death that he died, but don't be uh, consumed with that idea. Also, think about not only the sadness of the death, but also the glory of the purpose for which he died, that I might be saved be able to go to heaven when I die. Thank you.